Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Not every week will be remembered in history, but the last week in the UK will be. On Friday, September 23rd, 2022, the new Conservative government of Prime Minister Liz Truss took an enormous gamble with the British economy. Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, in the job for less than a month, presented what he did not call a budget to Parliament that pretty much undid the previous 12 years of Tory economic policy. The market response was distinctly hysterical, in a bad sense. I contacted Martin Wolfe, associate editor and chief economics commentator of the Financial Times, to help me understand what happened in the markets the last week, but also to get his assessment of the global economy at this difficult moment. I began by asking Martin Wolfe if he was as surprised as the foreign exchange markets had been by the Trust Quarteng budget. People who've been following this quite closely, uh, like me, were fairly familiar with what he was going to say. The broad outlines had been well trailed. The one or two surprises they're linked were the, the tax cuts are on uh, taxes on the most highly paid, people paying 45p uh, in the pound, and the basic rate tax cut which was brought forward by a year and was just a penny in the pound. Uh, those were surprises, but they weren't enormous fiscally. So the, the core of what they were going to do was quite clear. But I think what was striking was the brazen way it was done. It was as if all this was perfectly normal and reasonable, that the idea that somebody should come in, present a massive uh, fiscal statement, which obviously was going to have very large fiscal implications in the medium and long run, um, and to present such a thing without the slightest embarrassment, even though there was absolutely no evaluation of these longer run costs, either by the Office for Budget, Budget Responsibility or by the Treasury itself, and one or the other would clearly have been expected for decades, that was... I think, rather shocking. It was certainly, in that sense, very radical and revolutionary. And brought all together, it certainly made people, I think, aware, as it were, in the flesh, in a, in a way that was real, that this was a very radical and very different sort of government. Martin, the, the picture you paint is, is one of brazenness. Did they have no idea what the market reaction would be? I'm sure they were surprised by it. And um, from their point of view, most of what they were going to do had been well trailed. People sort of basically knew what it was going to be. So the market reaction on the day surprised them. And I must say, in extent and severity, it surprised me too. Uh, the, I think what they didn't understand is that there's sort of a moment in which investors look at the chancellor, the new chancellor, look at the new government to suddenly become aware of it sort of consciously, particularly people outside London and say to themselves, well, this is something really radical and very different, and we don't know where it's going to end up. But it clearly has implications for the future stability, political and economic of, of the UK, and we better reconsider it. What was it that surprised you in the negative intensity of the market reaction? Well, that's fairly straightforward. Uh, the 
I hadn't expect what was essentially a panic in the foreign exchange markets and the gilt market. So panics are very difficult to expect because you sort of think if you can really expect them, they'd already have happened. Uh, and uh, so what will trigger them is really often very, very difficult to judge. And in this case, I was surprised that markets showed surprise about something that we sort of really knew pretty well. Uh, and that was that is always what's surprising, that moment when everybody rushes for the door because they suddenly realize everybody else is rushing for the door and they don't want to be caught on the wrong side of the door. Well, I covered, to the best of my limited ability, earlier currency and bond crises uh, with Greece and, more interestingly, Italy a decade ago. What's different about this irrational event? Well, I wouldn't say irrational. Uh, it's just the sudden adjustment that is so striking. And, I mean, if you look at what happened in the Asian financial crisis in the uh, late 1990s and before that in 1982 with the Mexican debt crisis and several other developing country debt crises in, in between, the so-called tequila crisis of the mid-90s. And then, of course, in 2008, on the day after Lehman folded, which was a really big panic, they all have the same basic characteristic, that at some point, markets start to reprice assets. They think that the assets they're holding, investors decide the assets they're holding at current prices are not safe. They have to get out of them. And that then triggers the panic and everybody rushes for the door. And there's this moment or moments when suddenly people realize that there is nobody on the other side of these trades. You're trying to catch a falling knife. And once you're in that situation, everybody wants to get out. And that usually triggers further shocks in financial markets. And we saw that very clearly in this case early this week with uh, the crisis for pension funds. And that's usually because lots of people don't know who is vulnerable when this panic starts. They don't know where all the leverage is buried in the markets. And that triggers further panics because that leads to big adjustments in the values of other assets in the market. In this case, uh, theoretically, the safest asset, uh, government bonds. And that again happened in uh, February, March 2020 during the COVID crisis, when suddenly the US Treasury market ceased up. So panics of this kind are a fundamental feature of major corrections in markets. And the key thing here is that markets started correcting because they decided that UK government debt was not as safe at the, at the earlier very low interest rates that were being offered, and they had to get out. Well, this is where economy veers into politics. So you've got a new team, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. Do you think they underestimated the political cost of the way they presented their plan? Well, I would be very, very surprised if they uh, would have gone ahead if they'd known what was going to happen. Anything is possible, and Liz Truss is certainly a very, very determined woman. But going through this is not something they would have voluntarily done. 
I assume, uh, therefore, that they um, simply didn't expect it. Now, the interesting question is why they didn't expect it. I, I mean, part of the reason, I, I'm sure, is they think their proposals are completely reasonable and sensible and will revitalize the British economy, that the fiscal implications are trivial and the ones that matter have already been announced. And therefore, there was no reason for the market to, uh, to panic. On the contrary, they think markets should cheer because their program will restore growth and vigor to the British economy. And what's not to like about that? That's one reason. And I'm pretty sure that their insular thinking, that I, their isolated uh, way of thinking, disregarding normal professional opinion in the markets, in, among economists, in the bureaucracy, that help, helps explain uh, what happened. But the other aspect of it, I think, is that they had sort of pretty consciously decided to isolate themselves from sources of professional advice. So they had got rid of the top official at the Treasury, who would have been normally their most important advisor. The second from top uh, post in the Treasury is empty for no reason connected to them, but it is empty. So the Treasury was essentially decapitated and they might not have listened anyway. They have no serious economic advisors. Number 10 is a basically a shell operation, as far as I can understand it, with almost everybody who was advising Boris Johnson cleared out and no competent replacements. They have one or two economists on their side but most of them don't understand markets and are not very interested in this sort of issue at all. And I have a guess, though this is a guess, that they haven't talked to the Bank of England very much either about the implications of this. And of course, the OBR, though that would not have been uh, involved in sort of the market sensitivity, but the OBR was also obviously not engaged. So it's two people, so far as I can see, more or less entirely on their own, with absolutely no experience, absolutely none in the process of budget presentation, uh, in the possible market reactions to what they were doing. They'd never done jobs which were really directly related to this, or at least not to any significant degree. So I think they were just uh, taken aback, too isolated, and not really interested in what anybody could tell them um, about the possible reactions. I think of them, uh, and you just have to look at their program to realize this, that they are sort of not know-it-alls, they're zealots. And so they believe they know right, rightly about everything and they don't need advice. That is extraordinary to me, but in some ways not surprising. Look, it, it's clear that Liz Truss sees herself as the second coming of Margaret Thatcher, the ladies not for turning, and Kwasi Kwarteng has a doctorate in economic history, which is not quite the same as being a trained economist. But Trust wants to make the same bold moves as Thatcher did when she first became prime minister. But you wrote, as the markets were burning this past week, that she doesn't have the same scope for dramatic change as Margaret Thatcher did. Yes, I think the comparisons with Thatcher, though they are certainly ones that Liz Truss has in mind. I think she thinks she's the second coming of Margaret Thatcher. But one has to be quite careful about that, um, really very careful about that. 
they are quite different people. And of course, as you know, the context was very different. So Margaret Thatcher had a pretty radical program in mind. There's no doubt about that in some ways relative to what Britain had been in the 70s, more radical than this. Uh, these are sorts of ideas have now been around a long time and they were relatively new when Margaret Thatcher came to power. But there were also sort of, there was a societal consensus behind quite a bit of what she did. Um, so we'd had a long period of very, very high inflation and people wanted it stopped. So they promised to, to stop the inflation. That was very popular. And just a few years before she got into power, four years before she got into power, inflation had been about 25%. Just think about that. And that was seen as unbelievably shocking. So uh, she had popular support for that. There was very strong popular support for doing something about the trades unions, which had been were seen, rightly or wrongly, I think on balance rightly, as having ex been exercising unaccountable power over the economy for a long time, inflicting massive strikes, notably the minor strike of a few years earlier, which had given us the three days week when we couldn't guarantee electricity supplies. Uh, it was an even bigger shock than the current gas shock. And again, people wanted to change on that. There was a widespread sense that taxes were far too high. Top rate was of uh, earned income was 80%. That was seen as pretty crazy. It was introduced in wartime. It was no longer sensible a quarter of a century later. So people were pretty happy about changing that. It had to be more reasonable. Uh, the, a lot of nationalized industries were seen as really incompetent, indifferent to the customer's interests, telecommunications, the post office and tele telephones, for example. I could go on. People wanted these changes. Now, they were very uncomfortable with some of what happened. I remember this quite well. But nonetheless, there was a lot of people, quite ordinary people, who wanted the restoration of what they thought of as a somewhat, uh, uh, somewhat better economy. And in addition to that, Margaret Thatcher was really careful. She prepared the ground for her reforms really, pretty well. The cabinet was full of very heavyweight people. Some opposed her, but some very powerful people who supported her. Notably, the chancellor was a widely respected and figure in the Conservative Party, Jeff Jeffrey Howe. And so there was a sense that this was not a united government or a real split, but it wasn't just two people isolated within it, and it wasn't a sect. I think that's uh, an in, important difference. And finally, she was just very cautious on these big macroeconomic judgments. Um, she made some big mistakes, uh, notably the belief in monetarism, which became very, very difficult to operate. But they did preserve fiscal stability and fiscal credibility. They were very determined to do that. And Jeffrey Howe, in particular, was insisted on it. So they actually cut the fiscal deficit in the big recession because they thought that would lead to lower interest rates, uh, an expansionary economy. And that wasn't entirely wrong, though it came rather late. So I would say the intellectual framework and the political context within the country and within the government for Thatcher were very, very different from this, which comes in the what, 12th year of a conservative government, which has gone through many upheavals on the way. Uh, in the 
in the what's it the fourth year of this government anyway it's certainly um well into this uh government uh since the election in 2019 as a result of all this it seems just when we're getting really sort of tired of it run out of steam they suddenly throw in this ex apparently extraordinary revolutionary desire to transform the state into we know not what and that's a very different thing to do now a quick break this marks the seventh anniversary of the frdh podcast i keep it going through the donations of listeners like you please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation your contributions are what allow me to keep the podcast going. Please donate. Now, back to the conversation with the Financial Times' Martin Wolf. All right, Martin, I I'd like to take the conversation a little wider. The trust quartang clique of radical libertarians, and I, I guess that's the term of art, have been blaming external factors. Nothing we did, everybody's suffering the same problems in their view. And I suppose there's an element of truth in that, but who knows what's going on in the economy? I mean, I did, I studied economics as part of my education without specializing in it, and I, I think most of my listeners did as well. And, and frankly, I am confused about what are the main factors to pay attention to. I've been thinking about working on these things for half a century, I, I'm good at some of these aspects, I think, and I'm quite good at putting the pieces together, uh, having an overall picture. But anybody who claims to understand the economy, given all the ramifications, you know, the economy is in some sense the core activity of humanity. It's about our day-to-day -day living. Uh, nobody understands it. But it's easier to know when people are oversimplified really grotesquely oversimplified. I'm deeply discouraged, distrust anybody who says they are absolutely certain they know what's going on. What do you think are the most important statistics to pay attention to, to have an accurate picture of a world economy in which countries are hovering on the brink of recession and there's a war in Ukraine? Well, the, the big point is that uh, the world economy at the moment, or has been now for several years, been going through a series of huge structural shifts and shocks. I think unprecedented in the speed with which one follows the other. So I think the biggest structural shifts uh, has been the emergence of the uh, growing friction between the US and China and the threat to globalization. That's a, that's a big background shift. So anything going on there is relevant. But it, on the whole, these things, on the whole, these things don't move quickly. Now, the shocks we've experienced, and this is where I'll get to what later are going to be relevant, are one, COVID. Um, uh, the downside and then the huge surge in output in late 2020 and 2021, which brought us the second shock, which was the unexpectedly rapid rise of inflation, which at one point was thought to be temporary and turned out not to be. So figures on inflation became very, very important, as did figures on uh, wage inflation, 
because uh, that relates to the question of whether the generalized inflation is going to be embedded in the economy profoundly or not, and that already became a concern towards the end of last year. Then uh, we got the follow-up to that, which is the beginning of the tightening of monetary policy, in which the US led the pack, and that was probably the main reason, but not the only one, I'll come to that in a moment, for the strength of the dollar against all other currencies, which is almost always contractionary for the rest of the world economy. So that became a very big indicator of stress when the dollar moves up in the way it has been doing. This then it was, of course, followed very early, fairly early this year with, as you've mentioned, the war in Ukraine, which created another uh, uh, bout of uh, price rises for core inputs, food and, of course, oil and gas, but particularly gas. And this had the implication, very important, that this was now suddenly become a crisis for Europe, but far less so a crisis for North America. So there was a real divergence between the resource self-sufficient economies of North America, the United States being obviously the most important, and Europe, on the other hand, which is a massive net importer of energy and particularly closely tied to gas from Russia, with which we were a de facto at war. Of course, in this respect, Britain is part of the European economy. It's, it's also not directly an importer of gas from Russia, but if other countries are desperately looking for gas, then we're competing in the same markets and the prices move up for us just as they do for them. Now, if you want to follow what's, what figures are going to matter here, I tend to think uh, the movement of monetary policy, one, are they raising interest rates, continuing to raise interest rates or not? And at the moment, all the central banks are still in a tightening cycle. The movement of longer dated interest rates, bond yields, and we've seen that dramatically in the UK. Inflation rates, uh, are they peaking and beginning to come down or not? And in the UK case, I tend to also focus quite closely on the current account balance because that you know, the trade deficit, broadly defined, determines how much easily people can uh, it can the country the economy can fund itself because it needs to be uh, funded significantly from abroad those are the major indicators of stress but of course there are in it, these are at a macroeconomic level there's an, another one or set which are always become problematic in this context which are the major asset prices above all equity prices and I think very soon house prices so we will know how deep the crisis gets uh, if house prices and equity prices continue not just to be turbulent, but actually to fall much further. Then we know we're in quite a deep uh, crisis with the potential for a very deep recession. What's your prognosis? I mean, I, I'm still confused. I have in mind, you know, what we call in America a Rube Goldberg machine. I think Britons call them a Heath Robinson machine. You know, lots of levers on a crazy contraption. Or another image, a ship with not one tiller but multiple steering devices. Which to you is the primary one for guiding the ship through these extraordinarily difficult waters we're sailing through? Well, I think the most important thing to understand is 
there's a limit to what guidance can do. And that's particularly so when you're confronted with high inflation and recession at the same time, which is where we are. We've got an, a recession risk, which is very severe. And in Europe in particular, a large part of that is generated externally because of the enormous, what we economists would call, uh, shift in the terms of trade against us, which just means our import prices, above all of energy, have risen massively relative to our prices of our exports. So we're just worse off. Our real incomes have declined. And when real incomes decline, people can spend in real terms less, and that tends to generate a recession. Now, normally, governments could offset this by using monetary or fiscal expansion. Now, the governments can spend more, and they're doing that to cushion the blow, which is very sensible. So they've got targeted support for energy consumption. Everyone in Europe is doing that with greater or less efficiency, but this government too is doing that, which is fine. They can also normally, if you've got this sort of experience, you can lower interest rates through monetary policy uh, to offset the contraction. The trouble is that if you've got very high inflation and you're worried that inflation will become embedded in your economy, as happened, for instance, in the 1970s, which was the last comparable situation, you can't really cut in interest rates because it's likely to support the view that inflation is embedded and you risk then creating an inflation spiral, which uh, is a very big mess. So because of the nature of the shocks we're experiencing, which are themselves clearly recessionary, that tending to generate recession um, directly in the way I described and also indirectly through the impact on asset markets, on equity prices, on soon, I think, on house prices, some of the levers you would normally want to use to offset this, above all monetary policy, are not really very effective. They generate bigger problems on the inflation side, and you really don't want to let the inflation spiral go. And that is why policymakers are in such difficulty. They handle this set of shocks in ways that ensure that the ship stays basically upright is one thing, but there's probably no way at all, given the levers at their disposal and the huge real shocks we have experienced, that the ship won't get very, very battered. And a lot of the passengers, to continue with the metaphor, will get very, very seasick. There's a difference between seasickness and social crisis. You've just been talking about keeping the ship upright, but a lot of the passengers get sick. Do you worry we're heading towards a crisis where an entirely new organization of the global economy emerges? And that never happens without a lot of problems in the street. I suppose one way of thinking about this might be either the passengers or the crew revolt and throw the captain overboard. And one might say, though it's a little more complicated, it doesn't work out perfectly, that at the very least, in our case, the captain has been thrown overboard, though not for these reasons, and we have a new captain. Uh, so that's quite the radical. But of course, much more profound, if the passengers revolt and throw 
uh, the captain overboard. And that's a little bit, I think, what's been happening uh, to extend this metaphor with the rise of populism. I mean, what they're basically saying uh, with the rise of predominantly right-wing populism across much of the world, that we don't like the old crew. We don't like not just the old captain, but also all the other members of the crew who say they know what they're doing, but they keep on um, steering us into these terrible tempests. So they're doing something wrong. We want to replace them with another uh, group, not of respectable politicians like these, you know, so another set of professionally qualified crew members and captains. We want to replace them a completely new lot who've uh, really very little limited experience of this, but offer promises of some radical upheaval which will transform this favorably. I think the clearest example of that is what's happened in the Republican Party in the US with the replacement of traditional old style Republicans with the sorts of populists we're now seeing, of whom Trump is just the, the most obvious, but there are many others. And I think in their own way, Britain is different, all countries are different, but in their own way, the, the triumph of the Brexiters within the Conservative Party, all the anti-Brexiters have basically been driven out, and then the triumph of these Brexiters over other rather more moderate ones, um, moderate in their domestic political ambitions, is a reflection of that. We are already seeing, in other words, over the last, let's say, 10, 12 years, and I think the financial crisis played a big role in that, a desire to throw the old crew and captains out, uh, throw them overboard and replace them not with some other respectable lot, but with something pretty wild. So that's the background. Now, my own guess is that at least in Europe, and certainly in Britain, what we are seeing might lead to uh, an even stronger a desire to do this. I suppose my hope is now that we have got our radical right-wing populists in uh, libertarians in power in the UK, now that it's sort of pretty obvious they really don't know what they're doing and some of what they're doing will prove that they really go ahead with it, very, very unpopular, that uh, particularly the cuts in spending and welfare spending that are likely to come, that uh, what's going to happen instead is people will say, well, we have tried hard to get rid of uh, the old lot and we replaced them with a new lot, but they turn out to be hopelessly incompetent. And maybe we should go back to somebody who's a bit more sound and sensible and reasonable. Uh, and maybe if you're optimistic, from my perspective, that's what's going to happen. But I think your big point is clearly correct. We are in a period when uh, establishment institutions, uh, both private and public, and establishment figures, respectable people, quote unquote, the old bureaucracy, the old intellectual elites, as I will, are become unpopular for pretty good reason. And the people are desperately looking for somebody to trust in. Unfortunately, too often, I think they've chosen people who may be radical, which they probably wanted, but are not actually trustworthy. And that, of course, as we know from history, can create immense problems. 
Well, it's nice to know you still believe British pragmatism will reassert itself. Hope is rather than believe. I really, really don't know what happens next. But I would say in the UK so far, authoritarian right-wing populism is, thank God, as it was in the 30s, still very weak. Uh, our right-wing populism has tended so far to take the form overwhelmingly of libertarian right-wing populism. And that, I think, is undoubtedly a minority position in Britain. I mean, a really small minority, maybe 10 or 20% of the electorate at most. So if it remains like that, I think the hope that we will go back to stodgy old liberal democracy is not an unreasonable one. We don't really have an equivalent, at least since Brexit, when immigration was an issue that has really sort of gone away since then. We don't seem to me to have a wildly xenophobic, socially authoritarian movement with anti-abortion as a big issue, uh, gay marriage as a big issue, putting everybody in prison as a big issue. I mean, I think our politics are, in that respect, and from everything I read and see, still very, very different from those of the United States. We don't even have an equivalent. We don't have any equivalent of Georgia Maloney or Marine Le Pen in British politics. Uh, uh, remember, the fascists did really very, very bad in the 30s, despite the Great Depression. So in this respect, and I pray to God I prove right, I, I'm optimistic. And it is worth stressing, and it's one of the most encouraging features is that while I disagree on, with this government on many things, it is striking that all the major uh, ministerial positions, the old, recognised, great offices of state, apart from the prime minister, who is a woman, are held by um, ethnic minorities, people from an ethnic minority background. I think that fact that we have a female prime minister and, and people like Kwasi Kwarteng and, and others is actually tremendously encouraging that this is largely about economic ideology, a bit about attitudes to Europe, but it's not, I think, something more profoundly uh, worrying to me of a socially authoritarian and deeply xenophobic and racist nature. Martin Wolf, thank you very much. I say thank you. It's been very enjoyable. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. A reminder, please, if you've enjoyed this conversation or any of the others the last seven years, go to the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation to help me keep the podcast alive. Thanks.